All right, let's grab our Bibles. Uh, we'll dig in tonight uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and I believe we're in chapter 10. Does that sound right to everybody? Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are going to tackle the question that we have been intentionally avoiding for like six weeks, right? And uh, we're going to get there finally tonight and uh, have that conversation. See what let's do. Let's have a word of prayer and uh, then we'll just hop uh, right into scripture together. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we, uh, we again, we just come to you in this moment. And God, I'm just going to ask that you would help me, help me be true to scripture. Help me to be accurate uh, in explanation. And help us to learn uh, about you and about your word tonight. And may that learning take root in our lives and may it change our lives. May, may we never be Christians who are filled with head knowledge, but instead with living knowledge of Jesus Christ. God be with us now and with this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, tackle this. Um, we're going right there, so I want you to know we're not going to miss it. But we... I, as we get to this, we're going we're gonna to dissect this passage a little bit. Here's the thing that's really, really, really cool about this passage. This is one of those passages in Scripture that if you weren't careful and you were just doing devotions at home, you might read through it and go, wow, I, why was that in the Bible? It, it seems a little obtuse. It seems, it seems a little vague. I'm not even sure what God intended in that passage, what Paul was... Right? And, and you go on. And uh, hopefully tonight we're going to discover that sometimes some of the most valuable information, some of the best information, comes in passages that don't necessarily jump off the page on the first reading and say, this is what I mean. And so one of the things I just want to encourage you tonight to consider doing is having a piece of paper in your Bible. And that when you're reading in your own devotions, that when you come to a passage like the one we're going to unpack tonight together, that you just write down and go, you know what, I just didn't get verse 15 through verse 15. 12, you know, 18, whatever. And, and then you come to a place like this. You go to your small church or you go to your small group, whatever setting that is for you, and just ask. Ask somebody who maybe is further along, knows the scriptures a little better, say, help me out because I didn't get this when I read it. And you will be surprised at how fast you begin to start taking in and grasping scripture. But if you skip over and don't get it, it'll be just as confusing the next time you go. Okay, so it's just a great thing for you to do. So here we go. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10. And I think we're down to about verse uh, 14. And uh, here's what it says. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And 
chances are most of us, as we read that, went, huh? What? What? What are you trying to say, Paul? What, what are you trying to help us understand? Now, here's the other part that I think is uh, a little bit interesting. He's already kind of dealt with this, didn't he? Didn't we just a few chapters back, wasn't he talking about, remember food offered to idols? Remember we talked about how in those days all the food hung in the markets and flies were landing on the food and people often got sick. So when you went to the market, what you would do is you would look for a butcher who had an idol sitting out there by his meat because the idol was supposed to keep the meat from going rotten on you. And so you went to an idol approved butcher shop to get your meat. And remember, Paul already dealt with this controversy back in chapter 8. Do we remember that? How many people go, I think I remember that. Okay. All right. So in chapter 8, remember, here we were. We were Christians. We went to the market. There weren't a whole lot of Christian butchers. And so he was saying, well, is it okay to buy meat from a butcher who has an idol out there? And what's that going to say? And and. Would that be sin or wouldn't it be sin? And how many, how, many, how many remember anything that Paul said about that topic as we went through the first time? What did he say you ought to do? Okay, so we got some hands going up. He said, uh, eat whatever you want just so long as it doesn't cause another younger Christian to stumble. Yeah, he, he, he basically said, guys, here's the deal. You and I are Christians. Here's what we know about idols. They're not real. There is no elephant god, or there is no crocodile god, or whatever those, whatever the idol is made to, that god's not real. And you and I know that as Christians because we know there is only one god. And that all those other things are simply animals and that God created. And they're not gods. So even if you pray to that crocodile all day long, it, 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 it can't do anything for the meat. So... No, you know, but the one exception being if you're sitting there and you're at a table with somebody and someone says, hey, I just want you to know this is crocodile God meat. And he says, well, you know what? In that moment, maybe you shouldn't. And not because the crocodile God did anything to the meat. Why did he say maybe you shouldn't? Do we remember? Why should we maybe not eat crocodile God meat? If the person who was serving at the table made a big deal about it being crocodile god meat. Why did Paul say, oh, maybe pass? Okay. Anyone? Anyone remember? All right. We're going back. We had one person who listened uh, that week. I'm thankful for you. Uh, Um, You're directly responsible for them stumbling because they believe it's wrong. And in doing so, you kind of say, well, I don't care if you think it's wrong. Yeah. And I'm going to do it. And uh, it, it basically, I, I think the sum of it was that you just make somebody believe that, or, or doubt their belief. Yeah. Okay, so basically, and we really we kind of summed it up there, is just, hey, if I do that, and let's say I'm sitting at a table with a person who's a non-believer, but they're a believer in crocodile God, and, and, I, and, and he says, hey, I just want you to know crocodile God has blessed the meat, um, then if you and I go ahead and do it, if we eat it, then that guy thinks, oh, well, Jesus must be just one of many gods. So you apparently believe in the Jesus God, but you believe in the crocodile God. And so that's cool. So, you know, it's just, you know, multiple God type thing going on. But I'm glad you believe in my crocodile God. The other thing that may happen is if I'm sitting at a table with a baby Christian and now he watches me eat meat offered to a crocodile God, he may think, oh, 
he believes in crocodile gods, and that might cause that baby Christian to stumble. Okay, so remember, remember any, anybody remembering this at all? Okay, all right. Three of us. Okay, all right. So they, Paul has already tackled this. Now, just, just so that we don't lose a... Remember we said, hey, sometimes we think that stuff doesn't apply, but the reality is you and I worship false gods. We, we worship fame and we worship success and we worship how much money we make and we worship status and we, we have plenty of idols. We just don't usually cast them in metal or carve them out of stone, but it doesn't change the fact that you and I are just as prone to idol worship as they were. Remember we had that discussion? And then, uh, in the midst of that, we said, hey, there are some things in our world, too, that we could do that might cause a young Christian or a non-Christian to stumble if they saw us doing it. And remember, we came up with a list of, hey, there might be some movies that you and I would choose to go to that, you know, you might say, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter to me. I, you know, I can see naked people running on the screen and I don't lust, but it doesn't change the fact that even, even if you can convince me of that, the chances are a baby Christian seeing you do that or a non-Christian seeing you do that is going to go, you're just like me. You're just like me. And that you and I could potentially, even though we might argue we have the liberty to do something, might cause a younger Christian to stumble. And remember, Paul was pretty stern. Well, you do that, you're going to be held accountable. Okay? So remember the conversation. Yes. Okay. Here's the reason. Why then is Paul addressing this again? If Paul has already given us this answer, why is he coming back and having this discussion again about idols? Okay? And again, I just want to say to you guys, sometimes sometimes when you go, huh, huh means stop and look again because God's getting ready to do something really special in Scripture. So let's go back. We're going to unpack this just a little bit together and uh, see if we can pick up a few nuggets uh, out of this thing. Okay, so here we go. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. Now, wait a minute. Isn't this a different answer? Last time, didn't he say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Idols aren't anything. Don't don't worry about this. You know, idols aren't real. You know they're not real. I know they're not real. We don't need to be worried about... and, And now, in this passage, he's saying... Run away, run away, run away. Isn't that interesting? It's because it's a different context. Something is happening in this passage that is different than what was happening in the first passage. And in this context, in this application, in this moment, he's saying, stay away, stay away, stay away. Don't you dare even go close. Okay. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idols. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm about to say. And he's about to explain why in this moment you stay as far away as you possibly can. And here's the example he begins to give. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Okay, so we're going to camp there for a second because there's some confusion that goes on with this. So when he talks about the blood of Christ that we participate in and the 
bread that we participate. What's he talking about? Lord's Supper. We call it communion. Okay? And he says, ready for this? Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a, what's the next word? A what? A what? Participation. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? He says, is not the cup a participation of the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a, what's the word he uses again? Participation in the body of Christ. So he's saying, look, look, look. When you and I take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, there's something very powerful that happens in that moment. It is, he says, a participation in the body and in the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, this is, this, is, this is a big deal. Okay, now, some groups, some groups teach that when you take communion, when you take the, the wine or the grape juice, when you take the bread, that it literally turns into the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus Christ. And that literally by taking communion, you are taking the literal, the actual flesh of Jesus into your body. And you are taking the actual blood of Jesus into your body when you do that. Okay? That is, anyone know what that doctrine is called? You guys are going to get Bible 101 here. Any, there you go. It is trans... Sub, that is close, okay? Um, but this, if you, if you guys want to use that someday and impress your friends, you just got Bible college going here. Transubstantiation. And what transubstantiation just basically teaches, okay, Christian groups teach it, uh, that you literally are taking the physical flesh of Jesus into your body and you are taking the literal blood of Jesus into your body. And they would go further to teach and say simply this, and it is efficacious. In other words, it is effective to in some way save you. So in other words, they would be teaching that by taking communion, you are actually doing something that helps to save you. Now, most of these groups would teach that it saves you a little bit. It doesn't save you all the way. But it is something that helps to save you. How often do you think groups that teach this would want to do communion? Every Sunday. Because it would help to save you just a little bit more every Sunday. Okay? Anybody know which groups would teach this? Catholics. This is a Catholic teaching. Okay? Uh, There are some groups that would teach that the bread and the cup aren't the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, that that doesn't really happen, but that what happens is once you eat the bread and once you drink the cup, it has the same effect as if you had eaten the flesh and if you had drank the blood of Jesus. So they would say, no, 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 we know it's still a wafer and, and we know it's still grape juice, but... God does something special with it, and it has the same effect as if it was the 
blood of Jesus and as if it was the flesh of Jesus. Anybody know what that doctrine is called? Consubstantiation. And that is also close. Okay. Uh, Anybody know what groups would potentially teach this? Martin Luther taught this. Uh, This is the great argument that Martin Luther had with the Catholic Church, was he said, no, 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 it's not the literal body and blood of Jesus. It simply has the same effect as the body and blood, which then, in theory, he would be saying, it has the ability to save you a little bit. Okay? It was an interesting argument. Martin Luther, when he was talking to the Catholic priests and arguing this, uh, one of the things he said to them is he said, if you really believe in transubstantiation, if you really believe that, it, that something happens when the priest prays over it, and it actually becomes the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus. And that's why when you watch inside of a Catholic Mass, how careful they are not to spill a drop or to drop the wafer, because they teach that it is literally the flesh of Jesus. And Luther said, if you really believe that, then let's do this. Let me pour arsenic on the bread. If you really believe that something happens when the priest prays over it and that it actually becomes the flesh of Jesus and stops being the wafer, then let me pour arsenic on it. How many guesses as to how many priests took him up on that offer? Yeah, okay. So, again, though, but here's the thing happening. It's also still a doctrine that teaches that taking communion has the capacity to help save you. Within both of those teachings, how important do you think taking communion is? That's a big deal. What's the problem with both of those teachings? You can't find them in the Bible. They're just not biblical. They're not, they're not biblically founded. They are built on traditions uh, proposed by men. You cannot support them in Scripture. And a matter of fact, it's kind of hard to find verses that deny the doctrines because they aren't doctrines. They are traditions that came up later. But here's, here's a few things that if you ever end up in a discussion with somebody and they're talking to you about this, that you can say, first off is this. Uh, the first time that the disciples took communion had the Lord's Supper. Where was that? Where is it? They have it with who? Who, who, who institutes the Lord's Supper? Jesus. Jesus does. And he does it at the feast of Passover. Passover just before he goes to a cross. Right? Let me ask you a question. How can the Lord's Supper be the literal and physical flesh and blood of Jesus if Jesus hasn't died yet? Hmm. Okay, let me ask you another one. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, do this in memory of me. Not to get saved, not to get sanctified. He said, this is a remembering thing. This is a remembering moment. Absolutely. So here we come back. So great argument. He comes back and he says to them, hey, this is my body. Take and eat. This is my blood. Take and drink. Now what do you do? Maybe the Catholics had it right all along. We already got the answer. 
What did he say? Go back to the passage. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a what? Participation. It's a participation. And here's what you and I do every time we take communion. Every time we take communion, we say this. I am not trusting anything to get me to heaven except the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not that the wafer becomes the body of Jesus. It's not that the juice becomes the blood of Jesus. What you and I instead are doing exactly what Jesus said, we're holding a remembrance in which we are declaring, I am trusting one thing. I am trusting a Savior who died for me. I'm not trusting church membership. I'm not trusting baptism. I'm not trusting last rites. I'm not trusting, pen- I'm not trusting anything except the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm trusting to get me to heaven. And every time you and I take communion, communion doesn't save us. It declares what you and I believe is getting us to heaven. We participate. We put our lot in and say, this is what, that's the team I'm on. Does that make sense? Sort of? Kind of. Okay. Questions? All right. Question. I have a question about communion. I think we're close to it. What about when he said, do not take it unworthily? Right. Because then you could sleep if you do that. Right. Okay, so there's a, there's a passage that says, hey, be careful, be careful, be careful that you do not take communion unworthily. And what it goes on to say is, don't do this if you know that you have sin in your life. Okay? And the reason Scripture says that, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty easy, is when you do that, when you think, think about what you're doing in this moment. If I take communion... And I say, I am trusting only in the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross to get me to heaven. But I've got this whole area of sin in my life. I've got this area of absolute disobedience. I've got this area where I know I'm doing wrong and I don't care. You realize that every single sin that you and I committed had to be placed on our Savior. Every sin that we did added to the pain, added to the suffering. And when you and I sit there in a moment in which we're recognizing his death on the cross as our Savior, but go, I don't care. I don't care that I'm adding to it. I don't care that I'm making it worse. It's almost as if you're spitting on the cross of Jesus. Because you're saying, this is really cool. Jesus died for me, so now I can just sin my way. I can sin like crazy. And who cares? That Jesus has to die for that. And he says, in that moment, you're despising your Savior. Don't you dare take communion unworthy. It is unbelievably, unbelievably ungrateful and frivolous for you to do as a Christian. What now? 
Yeah, when you the, the part where it says and it caused he caused some to sleep, he's just saying, hey, you you take that type of a slovenly attitude, you take that type of a frivolous attitude about Jesus dying on the cross for you, and, and you just you know you're basically saying, I don't care, I don't care that it cost him that much. And God says, hey, there'll come a point where God will just say, I'm we're done with this discussion. Why don't you just come home to heaven? We're, we're, I'm not going to have you behave like that as a child of God. I'm not going to have you despise the death of your Savior and go live like the devil. Just come on home. Yeah. Okay. That's, yep. what, that's what I was going to mention also, that I thought that in that same scripture, I don't know where it is, it would be kind of nice to get to read it, to have everybody look at that, but uh, I was going to say that same thing, that I thought that it said that you can, be, you can get sick. Yep. If you're walking in known sin and disobedience to God, you can have you know have sickness come upon you and and also early death or death help me find it huh oh there you go all right um i was going to 15 so i went too far all right there we go Thank you very much. Okay, so here we go. Chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the blood of the Lord, or the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you who are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Because, again, you get what you're doing in that moment. You're saying, I, I don't care what it costs Jesus to save me. I'm going to keep running up my tab. I mean, if, guys, think about this. What if, what if there was a family down the street who was really, really, really struggling financially? And you decided you were going to do something to help. And so you went down to him and you said, look, here's the deal. I know, I know you're struggling. I know, I know it's wintertime right now and you're having a hard time keeping the heat on. Here's, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to pay your gas bill. I, I, just, I want to do that for you. And what if in the midst of that, they went, hey, that's cool. That's great. And you get the next gas bill and it's 1200 bucks. And you go, whoa, 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 what happened? And you found out, man, they, they, they've been running the jacuzzi and they've been turning the heater up to 80 and they've just been putting the barbecue out in the backyard and letting the flame go because it looked cool and they've been letting it run 24 hours a day. What would you say to them? You'd say, you're ungrateful jerks, wouldn't you? What do you think it feels like to Jesus when a Christian goes, hey, I've got my fire insurance. I know I'm a Christian, I get to go to heaven, so I'm just going to run up the bill. I'm just going to behave any way I want to behave, and I'm going to do anything I want to do, and I'm going to trample the blood of Jesus under my feet because, hey, no big deal. There's plenty more of that where it came from. And Jesus says, hey, this is the reason. When you come to that solemn moment of taking communion where you're stating in that moment, hey, I am counting on nothing else but the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross to get me to heaven. But, oh, by the way, I'm going to just run up the bill. And God says, no, 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 we're not going to play that game. That's deeply ungrateful of you. How dare you? How dare you despise the death of my son, the sacrifice of my son, 
and hold it in such little regard. No. No, we're not going to do that. Better that you not take communion that day. That's what he says. Do not take it unworthy. Don't take it unless you're saying, I trust it, I get it, and I'm trying to live a life that shows appreciation for it. Okay? All right, so let's go back to the passage. All right, here we go. Therefore, my dear brothers, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the blood of Christ? Okay? And, and all it's saying is simply this. When you and I take the cup, when you and I take the bread, we are making a statement. I'm in. I'm in with Jesus. I'm counting on Jesus. I'm counting on nothing else. I'm in. It is a statement of loyalty. Does that make sense? Okay. Because, verse 17, there is one loaf, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So we're saying, look, we are all in Christ. And what you're saying is, I am in Christ. That's where I am. That's where, that's where I'm identifying myself. That's where I'm stating my allegiance. I am in Christ. Consider, now here's his second example. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. So they say, look, when they go that day... And they take that lamb, and the lamb gets slain on the altar, and part of it gets burned up as the sacrifice. But then they're also supposed to take and eat part of that sacrifice as a symbol of saying, something had to die for me. And they eat it. Aren't they saying, I am trusting that sacrifice to put my stead with God and me right for the time being? Okay? Aren't they participating, he says? Aren't they putting, aren't they putting their statement about what they're trusting? We're good so far? Okay. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean that a sacrifice altar to an idol is anything or that the idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. Now, here's what was happening. There were feasts going on inside of Corinth. And those feasts were in celebration to pagan gods. And here's what the Christians were saying. Hey, this is pretty good. We can go to these feasts, we can go to these parties that are all about the crocodile god or they're all about the elephant god, and since we know that God's not real, it doesn't do anything to hurt us, but we get a lot of free meat. This is a lot of fun. You get what's happening? And they're saying, look, we've got this freedom because we all know the crocodile God's not real. And we know, we know that the elephant God's not real. So when we get invited to the feast, we just go chow down and it doesn't mean anything. What did he just say? Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Matter of fact, he started the passage by saying, flee. Stay away, stay away, stay away. Why? 
Why? The idol isn't real. The meat isn't changed. Why stay away? Well, in that first example, he was talking about buying meat from a butcher that had been sacrificed during some ritual, you know, and now it's the leftovers in the marketplace. And and in this example, it's about participating in something that honors or worships this false god. Hmm. And and the, the key is that participation word. You know. There you go. Did you get it? The key is that participation word. He says, look, 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 here's what's happening. In the very same way that when you and I sit in a church service, and if you and I take communion, here's what we're saying. I'm in. I'm a believer. I'm counting on the blood of Jesus, and I'm counting on the body of Jesus to be the sacrifice. I'm in. This is what I believe. I'm in. I am participating in this. You get it? He says, when you go to that feast, to that pagan God, and you know, you know that God's not real. You know that it's not there. But guess what you're doing? You're participating. You're making a statement, even though that God is not real. I'm in. And everybody who sees you there, everybody who knows you went, believes you just pledged allegiance to the crocodile God. That's what they believe. They believe you're in. Okay, you get the principle? It's participation. Remember the question we asked as we came into tonight. Hey, what do I do? What do do I do in moments in my life when I've got friends who are living in lifestyles that are completely outside of what I know Jesus Christ wants them to be doing? I know there there are lifestyles that are against God. What do I do? How do I live those moments? And we said, wow, we've got to figure this out. Okay, so let's go back in Scripture. Uh, Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Here's what he says. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Ready for this? Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So he says, look, as a Christian, you've got to be willing to hang out with people who don't know your Jesus. And, and while you're hanging out with people who don't know your Jesus, guess how people who don't know your Jesus are going to behave? Like people who don't know your Jesus. That's how they're going to behave. That's, that's just what people who don't know Jesus yet do. They behave like people who don't know Jesus. So he says, look, look, look. You're not supposed to hang out with Christian brothers. Get this? You're not supposed to hang out with Christian brothers who act like they don't know Jesus. Those are the wrong Christian brothers to hang around. Don't do that. But I'm not saying don't hang around with people who don't know Jesus, who act like people that don't know Jesus, because if I said that, you'd have to leave the world. Okay? So it's okay to be around people and to have friends who don't know Jesus. But now you and I just got to the other side of the coin. The line, you ready for this? The line that you and I are not to cross. What's the word? Participation. Okay? It's simply this. I'm not to go to the feast of that false god. I'm not to go to that place 
where my very presence in the place begins to say to the people who see me go there, I must be in. I am part of this. I condone this. And I think probably one of the easiest ways to kind of maybe help define that line is this. Is the event, is the thing that's happening, is the very purpose of it to bring glory to something that would be unglorifying to God? Let me say that again. Is the very purpose of the event, is the very purpose of the happening to do something that would bring glory to something that would not be glorifying to God? Let me see if I can help. I was a high school pastor for years and years and years and years. Every single year, high school kids would raise their hands and they'd say, Hey, uh, there's this big party going on back by the lake. And uh, they're going to be drinking and the guys and the gals are going to be going off in the woods and messing around. Uh, And I want to go to the party. But I'm going to go there and not do anything... And that will be my testimony. See, they'll see me not doing anything, and then they'll know. Anybody want to guess what the right answer to that question is? Paul gave it to you right here. Run away, run away, run away. Flee, idols. Because the very purpose of the event was to glorify and do things that do not glorify God. And he's saying, as a Christian, you have no business being there. Because the very fact that you go, you ready? That you go there makes you a participant. Whether you do it or not, it makes you a participant. It says to them, I'm in. I'm in. And apparently this is okay. And he says, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. So we had a great question two weeks ago, and that was, hey, I've got a friend. I've got a friend who struggles with homosexuality. I'm trying to be their friend. And they've asked me to go to a concert. The problem is the concert glorifies a homosexual lifestyle. Should I go? And the answer is no. You don't go. You don't go to a place where the very event, the purpose of the happening is to glorify something that does not glorify God. Now, if it was a neutral concert, it was, you know, what's the little guy that sings right now? Huh? Justin Bieber. Bieber. Yeah, if it was Justin Bieber, go, go. Go with your friend, it's fine. Okay, as long as they're not lusting after Justin. No, I'm teasing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you 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 get the conversation. I can go somewhere where the purpose of the event, and I can go there with a person who does not know my Jesus, I can go there and be their friend, I can hang out with them, I can have them as part of my life, that's great. I just can't go with them to places or to happenings where the purpose of the happening is to glorify something that does not bring or disglorifies my God. Does that make sense? Okay? And that's the line. 
That's exactly what he's teaching here to a group of people who were going to feast for idols. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You and I all know that the, the, the idol isn't real. But the problem is you become a participant when you go. And everybody there thinks you're putting your vote in for the idol. And when you go to that concert, and that concert is about glorifying a homosexual life, no, you can't do that as a believer because everybody thinks you're putting your vote in. And you can't do that. You've crossed the Just don't go. Don't even go close. It's what I said to every high school kid who said, we're going to the lake, don't go. It's not about a testimony anymore. In fact, your testimony will be ruined by going. Go with your friend to Denny's. Don't go to the lake. Okay, questions? Yep. Yeah, there was something you and I were talking about um, after the mine last week, and that is a situation where I think one of the people in the crowd here said they had a relative that was going to get married that was gay. Sure. And so that would be glorifying going to that, that wedding ceremony. The other issue that came up was, okay, in at least one Christian denomination, they were accepting a gay bishop, and now we know some of the states are allowing gay marriage. So all that was thrown into the mix, and I just wanted to see if um, you could address that again. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's the thing, and I just want to say this out loud because I, I, you know, who knows, there may be someone in, in this room who's uh, struggling with that lifestyle or Someone, surely there's people in this room who have friends who are involved in struggling with that lifestyle. And here's, here's what you just hear me say. Um, I'm not angry. I, I'm not mad at, any, at anybody who... Because here's the thing, guys. We've all got our flavor of sin. And, and I'm going to be honest with you and tell you it, that's a flavor of sin that I don't fully understand. But it's a flavor of sin. We've all got our flavor of sin. And we've all got the things that, we are, that, we're, that deeply attract us that are just dishonoring to God. We've all got them. And you and I have got to be desperately, desperately careful that we don't throw away the sinner in their sin. Okay? The flip side of it is we can't excuse it either. You can't say, hey, it's okay. You were born that way. Because first off, you and I can argue all night long as to whether or not someone is born with homosexual tendency or not. But it doesn't matter. Because I'll just tell you very honestly, I was born a really good luster. And it doesn't make any difference. I'm not supposed. I'm supposed to bring that in subjection to Jesus Christ. There are some people in here who were born with a deep propensity toward alcohol and drugs. Doesn't matter. As a follower of Christ, you're supposed to bring that in subjection to Jesus Christ. There are some people in this room who were born just naturally deeply angry people, and they flare up. Doesn't matter. You're supposed to bring that in subjection to Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day. It's sin, and Scripture doesn't apologize for it. Scripture is very, very clear on it. If, if you're not sure about that, read Romans chapter 1. You cannot get through Romans chapter 1 and not know that God is very, very clear about this topic. It is inappropriate. It is wrong. It is not a behavior. Just like adultery is not a behavior that's acceptable to God, sleeping with your boyfriend is not a behavior that's acceptable to God. It's not acceptable. <clears throat> Do I go to the wedding? I will tell you... I would not go to the wedding. Not because I'm trying to be mean, but because of this. I, I think if I go to the wedding, because I don't believe it's possible for a man to marry a man, or for a woman, or Scripture says, 
For this cause shall a man leave his father's mother and be joined to his wife. God made them male and female. And I don't believe there's such a thing as marriage between two men or two women. I don't care what the state says or doesn't say. And if I go and I observe that wedding, I believe I am saying in some way I acknowledge this as being legit. It's not legit. I don't know anything else. So I'm just going to tell you personally, I believe it crosses the line. I wouldn't, I would not go to that wedding. I would love them. I'd go to Denny's with them. You know, I'd, I'd hang out, but I'm not going to the wedding personally. And it doesn't change the fact that I love them. I, I just can't participate. I can't confirm. Get the moment. Okay. Questions? This isn't a question, but it, okay. um, it's something along the lines of what you're talking about. I heard this one time, and I think this especially helps kids when they have that hard time about going places where they shouldn't go. I heard somebody say one time, if you took a Christian and you stood them on a chair and, and a non-Christian is on the floor, is it easier for the Christian on the chair to pull the non-Christian up or the non-Christian to pull the Christian down. The leverage is on the, the one on the ground, which is the non-Christian. Right. I, I get the illustration, and I think there's some legitimacy in the illustration. Um, I, th- I think there's a balance within this discussion, and that is simply this. You and I as believers can't walk around fearful of having non-believing people in our lives and in relationship. Too many churches and too many Christians have become holy huddles, and, and we all just hang out with Christians, and our kids only go to Christian schools, and we only go to Christian events, and we only go to Christian concerts, and at the end of the day, the only people we know in our lives are Christians, which this means the rest of the world gets to go to hell because we're not involved in their lives at all. And I don't think that's what the church was ever meant to be. I do think that there is a balance to this conversation. Um, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 14 says this. And you guys know this. You know this verse probably pretty well. Here's what it says. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what, do fe- what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. And over and over and over again in Christian churches, we use this passage. say, see, Christians shouldn't hang out with non-Christians. That's not what the passage is teaching. What does the passage say? Do not be, what? Yoked. It doesn't say don't be friends. It says don't be yoked. What was a yoke? You tied two oxen together, and then you had them work for a common purpose. Right? We're going to pull the plow together. And he's saying, look, the thing a Christian can't do, that's an oxen. Years of art school to be able to do that. Okay, so 
those two oxen. He says, the thing a Christian can't do is tie their life to become one in cause and purpose with someone who doesn't know their Jesus because that person's not going the same way you're going. They don't have the same purpose. They will, and now to your illustration, drag you down if you tie your life to them. You cannot, cannot, cannot do that. Okay? You can't be yoked with a non-believer. So that talks about marriage. Yes? Nod your heads because it does. Okay? Yes. I'm going to suggest to you, I think it talks about business partnerships. I think you are loony in your head as a believer if you yoke yourself financially and corporately with someone who doesn't know your Jesus. I think you're crazy. Okay? That's just my opinion. I think you're crazy. Deep, deep friendships. I do not believe that a Christian should have their deepest and most profound friendships with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Why? Because in your moment of struggle, in your moment when someone wounds you and you're mad, and now you go to the person who doesn't know Jesus, you say, man, I just feel like punch him in the nose. What is that person who doesn't know Jesus going to tell you to do? Hit him really hard. When, when, when you're breaking up with your girlfriend and, and, and you go to the person who doesn't know Jesus and you say, boy, I'm just so mad. I just, I just feel like going out and sleeping with every person who will sleep with me. And that person who doesn't know Jesus is going to say what to you? Go for it. Because they don't know Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the best they've got. And if that's who your life is yoked up against, if that's your deep and profound friendship, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. But is it possible to have a relationship with somebody who doesn't know Jesus but not be yoked to them? Yeah. It's called an acquaintance. It's called a friendship. Okay? So let me describe this real quick. You're the Christian. Okay? And we can put Christ there because you're supposed to be a little Christ. Okay? So you're the Christian. Okay? Can you have a friendship with a person who does not know Jesus? So we'll just put non for non-Christian. Can you have a friendship with someone? Yes. Okay? Can you have a relationship that looks like this? In other words, they're leaning on you. They're depending on you. They listen to you for advice. Can you do that with a person who doesn't know Jesus? Yes. Can you have a relationship like this? No. Which means you can't date them, and you surely can't marry them. Because you cannot be in a dependent relationship where I seek your counsel, I seek your support. The only relationship a Christian can have that is a dependent relationship is either with his Lord or a follower of their Lord. There's this amazing... How much time do we have? Oh, okay, so let me tell my one-minute story. All right, so... How many, how many... Were any of you guys here when Judge Reinhold came and spoke at our church like seven, eight, nine years ago? Okay, I love Judge... Judge Reinhold, in case you don't know, he's a movie star, he's a movie actor, a lot of B movies. I don't want to tell you some of the movies because they were kind of raunchy before he came to know Jesus. Um, but if you saw his face, you'd go, oh, I know him. Okay, so Judge Reinhold came here friend day. Here's how Judge Reinhold became a Christian. He's on the set of a movie, and this girl comes walking on the set, and there is something about this girl that is remarkable. There is something about her that just is different than every other person on the set, and he is deeply attracted to her. And so Judge Reinhold, being the star on the set, goes over and says, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this girl out. And he asks her out, and she's kind of hesitant, and he kind of pushes a little bit, and finally she says, okay, I'll go to lunch with you. 
So now here's Judge Reinhold. He goes to lunch with this young lady. And uh, they're sitting down. The waiter comes and says, would you like water and all this? And by the time the, water, the waiter has left the menu and he's heading back, here's the first words out of her mouth. Judge, I, I just need to say this to you. I'm a Christ follower. And you just need to know that I'll be your friend, but I can never be in a dating relationship with you because I cannot imagine being in a relationship with somebody who does not love Jesus as much as I do. What a great testimony. Judge then said, well, I can go to church. And she said, okay, you can go to church with me, but that doesn't mean we're dating. And a matter of fact, he ended up going to church, hoping to win the heart of this girl, ends up becoming a Christian, ended up marrying a completely different girl. Cool part being that she was a Christ follower in her life. But it happened because that young lady had enough character that in the first 10 minutes of the dating relationship, she said, I cannot attach my life in the way you're hoping to someone who doesn't know my Jesus. I cannot do that. I wish every one of our single young men and young ladies had the strength of character and resolve of heart to say the same thing. I cannot imagine attaching my life to someone who does not love my Jesus as much as I do. Unequally yoked. Okay? So can we be friends with people? Absolutely you can be friends. Can, can you hopefully be the best thing in their lives? Absolutely. But I cannot participate with you. I cannot align my life with you. I cannot do that. Okay? And that's exactly what Paul is teaching in this passage. Okay? So we're done on time. Right? Okay? Um, I'm gonna, we're going to pray. We're going to close. If you're mad at me, you can send the email. Uh, my, my email is rickcalcutt at... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but if you have questions, I'll stay at the front and I'll talk to them. Let's pray real quick. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for scripture. Thank you for passages of scripture that sometimes we might be tempted to read over and not realize that you're actually teaching really, really powerful principles about how to navigate life and where lines ought to be and, and when not to cross them. And so, God, we just ask that, God, you, you, would you give us the capacity to live in this world, to maybe even be the best friend that a person who is far from Jesus has, but yet God not put ourselves in dependent relationships, in needing relationships with people who haven't figured you out yet. Help us to stay away from places that would endorse things that would hurt your heart and cause you pain. God, help us not to participate in those. And God, we give you the moment in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you guys.